Good evening. You are listening to a Rad Religion Broadcasting premiere podcast, TV Party Tonight. I'm your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radledge. And tonight, our favorite show is Oh, 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 the right stuff from Disney Plus, brought to you by the good people at Warner Brothers Domestic. Uh, television, Appian Way Productions, and National Geographic Studios. I am joined by the Canadian Brigade of the Rathalogen Broadcasting Network, Team Canada itself. First, uh, one of our semi-regulars on Damn You Hollywood, Mr. David Wright. How do you do, sir? I am wishing we had a space program, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, you usually hear him on our shows for The Crown and our annual Veterans Day program, ladies and gentlemen, and, of course, some of the the odd Marvel shows here and there, uh, arguing about uh, chain of custody for Captain America's shield. <laughs> Andrew Graham, how do you do, sir? I do well, Mark. How are you? I am very good. All right, so... This was a wild hair I got up my butt, this Right Stuff show. It... Uh, it debuted i believe on disney plus when the whole streaming service debuted and i put it off for a while um it, you know there wasn't anything concurrent to sort of link it to when i was doing that sort of thing so i put it off and i put it off and then there just happened to be some space on the schedule once upon a time and i was like you know i really wanted to watch this show and what always gives me a good use to watch something is if i'm going to talk about it and i was like you know who would really like this show and i bet they'd want to talk about it too the two guys who are always talking about like planes and spacecrafts and war and armies and shit so <laughs> i put it out to you guys and i'll go to you first david um you know i uh, I, t I asked you if you want to talk about the right stuff you jumped right on it had you seen the old movie are you interested at all in like the history of the space program what brought you to the dance uh, yeah, well, it was mostly when you first asked, but yeah, like growing up, I was always interested in space. Like I think every boy goes through a space phase. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I read, read up lots of, lots of books in the school library on it. And yeah, I eventually tracked down the, the movie and gave that a watch. So yeah, so I thought, you know, Disney plus series could be interesting. So gave it a look. Cool. What about you, Andrew? Um, tremendous amount of interest in like the space race and stuff. Were you interested in this, um, like the real life history behind the, what made the show? Um, it's funny, I haven't actually seen the original movie, and I, I haven't had a chance to read the book, but I, I definitely grew up with a lot of kind of space-adjacent stuff, a lot of aviation-adjacent stuff. I mean, uh, Dave and I were both in Air Cadets together back a, a lifetime ago at this point, Dave. I'm sorry to bring yeah. up how long ago that was. Oh, no, that's fine. Yeah, I think that, I think that was when we first met, too. Oh, and that was when we first met about 21 years ago now, 22? That sounds about right. Yeah, it was... Yeah. It's been a while. Oh, yeah, but, um... You know, grew up a lot of fascination from the space program from my dad. My uh, my grandfather had a lot of interest in it. In fact, somewhere around my house, I'm pretty sure I have, like, the old cassette decks. of He did um, ham radio recordings of, like, some of the Gemini and early Apollo missions. So there's all those radio recordings. And, I mean, it's always been kind of, a you know, a constant interest in terms of sci-fi and stuff like that. 
still some ongoing interest. Um, I actually had the opportunity. Um, Mark, have you ever heard of Chris Hadfield? That name sounds vaguely familiar. He was a Canadian astronaut that went up about 10 years ago and did all the, uh, all the music videos and stuff like that. Okay. I actually got to meet him about eight years ago when he, he came to Calgary for an event right after the, uh, after he came down from the, uh, uh, from the space station. Okay, cool. And we've got like half a dozen kids books that he's written that, that we read to our kids on a regular basis and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, just like you guys, I mean, I grew up, my dad is a huge science fiction fan. I grew up on like Isaac Asimov and uh, Robert Heinlein. I actually, for a book report in school, I did um, Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. So I've always had that kind of connection. Big Star Trek fan. Dave's had me on his podcast, as a matter of fact, talking mm -hmm. Star Trek. Um, but I don't know, as much as I've had sort of an ancillary hish, um, interest in the history of the space program, I don't know that much about it. So I was when the... So I've actually never seen the original Right Stuff movie. We initially had it slated to talk about here, but, you know, time runs out, as they say in Marvel Comics. So we never got a chance to. But um, like I said, when I saw that they were going to put the show on Disney+, Plus, I was like, I really got to watch this. And I have to say, just leading into the discussion of the show, I really, really enjoyed this. I watched it while I was on vacation uh, over the past week, and... I wasn't quite sure if I if it was going to hook me, but I have to say, you know, I, I know like the title card right at the beginning says like some, you know, some things were just plum made up for dramatization, you know, based on real life, but they finagled some things to make it a dramatic offering. But I appreciate even, the honesty. <laughs> if that's even, if any of that's even like remotely true, like how John Glenn behaved and all of that, I was like, wow, what a soap opera this thing was to try to get a guy in, you know, into the atmosphere. So let's get into it. Um, Actually, the question is, it was more about how to get a guy out of the atmosphere. but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so the right stuff takes a gritty, anti-nostalgic look at what would, what would become America's first reality show as the obsessive original Mercury 7 astronauts and their families become instant celebrities in a competition that will either kill them or make them immortal. The eight-part, one-hour-per-episode drama will follow the protagonists from the Mojave Desert to the edges of space with future seasons carrying through to mankind's achievement, the moon, greatest achievement, the moon landing. Um, so we were talking, Dave, before the show, we, before we started recording tonight, that at the moment, it, it's, uh, it, don't, it canceled after the first season, but um, the show financier... Warner Brothers is actually looking to shop the series to another network. So we might get a second season of this, but not on Disney Plus at the time. All right. So this stars Jake McDormand as Alan Shepard, Patrick J. Adams as John Glenn, Colin O'Donoghue as Gordon Cooper, James Lafferty as Scott Carpenter, Aaron Staten as Willie Shira, and uh, several others of names I do not recognize at all. Episode one, Sierra Hotel. In the opening prologue, it's May 5th, 1961, when NASA is preparing to send first American man into space. Astronauts Alan Shepard and John Glenn prepare for the launch with tensions high between them. Back in 1959, NASA, headed by Bob Gilruth, begins its search for the best test pilots and role models in the country to lead their first mission in space. Uh, during testing, candidates Alan Shepard and John Glenn compete for the head of the pack, and Gordo Cooper asks his estranged wife, Trudy, to reconcile with him for the sake of the space program. Boy, does this become an ongoing theme. From 108 candidates, only seven pilots were accepted. Alan Shepard, John Glenn, Gordo Cooper, 
Gus Grissom, Wally Shira, Scott Carpenter, Deke Slayton. In a press conference, the Mercury 7 are introduced to the world. All right, I'll start with you, Andrew. What did you think of this first episode? You know, it was a solid launch. It gave, you know, it did a good job of kind of the flash forward, setting up some of the, the kind of innate character tension between Glenn and Shepard, and then going back and kind of introducing everybody to the main characters, a lot of their, their you know, their motiva- motivations, what their characters were, um, you know, a lot of the motivation and the positioning of where NASA was relative to the rest of the story. Um, overall, kind of solid pilot episode. What are your thoughts, Dave? Yeah, it's just basic setup, introduce the characters, start, you know, the beginning of the arcs and threads, like you say, the, mm-hmm. the marital strife you know, is, is being, yeah. being primed. What I uh, love, my, my favorite part of this first episode is right at the beginning. It's, you know, John Glenn and um, Alan Shepard eating, was it filet mignon for breakfast? Yep. Oh, yeah. In their, in their bathrobes at a very long table. And it's a very dimly lit scene. And just the dramatic tension between the two, because, again, I don't know anything about it or, or what all is going to happen. But, like, your first sort of glimpse into this world is them just quietly eating and you know, John's just sort of breaking the silence and chatting. And Alan Shepard just looks at him and goes, you st- what was it? You, st- you went behind my back. Don't act like we're friends. And suddenly like, Ooh, you know <laughs> what? One thing about this show, I'll get, I'll get your kind of reaction to this. And then we'll move on to the second episode is for a show about, and, and this kind of surprised me, but for a show about, sending astronauts into space and how we got there and how the NASA program evolved from a, apparently from a place of nearly being shut down is how soapy this show is written. Like this is not a dry show at all. This is, you know, not quite sex, drugs and alcohol, uh, and sex, drugs and rock and roll, but still very soapy, very, very like over dramatic at times. And it's, it's, it's a, but it's a lot of relationships and a lot of backstabbing set against the space program, but it's definitely about the personalities involved, Andrew. Definitely. And I mean, I think there there's personalities and I'm going to say culture in there as well. And I'll get to that in a second, but I think mm-hmm. I haven't read the book, so I can't speak to the, the kind of the, how accurate any of the, the quote unquote soapiness is. Mm-hmm. I think the other source they might have pulled from along from the right stuff is actually a book that was written by John Glenn's wife called Astronaut Wives and actually got turned into its own show. And that, yeah, that colors some of that as well. My wife actually watched that. She was like, it, it really would make a good companion show to watch after you've watched the right stuff. She loved it. Uh, I've heard it. I've, I've heard good things about it. Yeah. And I think the other thing they get into a little bit here is also talking about the culture of pilots, the culture of the different services they come from, things mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, you, you get to see a little bit, and I think it was with Gordo, you get to see one of his flights where his, um, I can't remember, was it, was it his flight lead? But the other guy he was flying with got killed during the result of it. And they even have a line, it's like, the annoying thing about test pilots when they're going down the list is is that, you know, the, the element of their profession is that they get killed. All right. And I mean... The other thing that I think pulls into this a lot, especially when it comes to John Glenn's character, and this is a supposition on my part, is that a lot of the, I think basically all the other test pilots are either are either naval aviators or they're Air Force, and John Glenn was the only United States Marine. And I, Sorry, go ahead. I was about to say, between those three services, those mm-hmm. are incredibly different cultures. 
Yeah, I was going to say that, that Dave, that's a, a point of contention in the show. When the one um, person working for NASA is sent to go get a list together of astronauts, he pulls from the Navy and the Air Force, and John Glenn's not initially part of the list, and you know he's told by the boss character, like, hey, we're, you know, why isn't John Glenn on here? He's like, I can't remember why he said, but like, you know, well, we just didn't choose any Marines. Too old. To, okay. Um, like 38 when this happened, so. Wasn't there another thing, though, about just not choosing Marines in the first place? I can't remember if it was. I mean, I think at that time, I mean, in like the early, late 40s, early 50s, the whole Marine Corps nearly got ruled into either the Air Force or the Army. Or okay. the, the Navy really? or the Army. So it's always been kind of the... In some ways, it's always been kind of the lesser of the of the four major services in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and in another series, Generation Kill, one of uh, Marine describes themselves as you know, the uh, the Marine Corps is America's little pit bull. They beat us, mistreat us, don't feed us all, and every so often let us out to invade a country. <laughs> poke em, poke em, poke em. All right, go. <laughs> so um, it's, it's culturally very different. It's much more. Um, I don't want to get dramatic, but warrior ethos is probably the best way to say it. They're mm-hmm. they're not there to to for for any glory outside of combat. I'll put it to you that way. Gotcha. Okay. They're combat arms. Dave, you want to weigh in here? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could do a whole series of podcasts on uh, like the inter-service rivalries and uh, cultural differences within the American forces. Uh, but probably another thing I would add is like these these are all you know, like like fighter pilots, mm-hmm. like, like top level. So you're dealing with a lot of type A personalities. So highly, highly competitive. You know, these, these guys don't like to be second place in anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get a bunch of people like that, you know, and in the same room and, uh, you know, yeah, there, there's going to be a bit of friction, especially when there, there can be only one. <laughs> yes. Very Highlander esque. One last kind thing. Of. And then we'll, <laughs> one last thing. And then we'll jump into the next episode is, and and this the, a lot of this is the focus on Gordo, but there's also some of this with Alan, and it's not something I really thought about. Um, and certainly in the era in which this takes place, it, it made sense after the fact. But it going into the show, it just wasn't something that had occurred to me. Is how image conscious, um, how tightly wound up this whole NASA program was. Uh, that two things. One didn't realize one how close NASA was to being defunded because they were having, I guess, so many difficulties, technical difficulties Two, how image conscious it was in the fact of like, you know, Gordo wants to be a, um, an astronaut, but because he's estranged from his wife, he might not be chosen. And that has nothing to do with his piloting skills. And I really found that fascinating, Dave, that just how much, even, you know, in the late fifties, early sixties, it's not just about your skill level. It's about all these other things too. And it's like, you know, we, you know, we haven't even come close to approaching. I mean, that's one of the things that said in the synopsis is like, this is America's first reality show, which I never thought about, but what a way to frame this. Uh, yeah. So you have to re- take into account, you know, like you say, this is the fifties. So it's a, it's a different mm-hmm. time culturally with a bit different values than what we have now mm-hmm. and a lot more emphasis put on this. Like this is sort of the golden age of aviation. This is where, 
you know, we had all this technological process, uh, progress from like the Second World War sort of filtering its way into the civilian world. Like, you know, this is the start of the jet age. This is where the, you know, the sound barrier was broken. You know, like, so this is, you had a lot of public interest in this stuff compared to nowadays where, you know, there's not nearly as much excitement about space exploration. Not to say there isn't any, but, you know, mm -hmm. this isn't the, the cool cutting edge thing. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you know, a few decades ago, you know, every kid wanted to be an astronaut. Now every kid wants to be a YouTube influencer. <laughs> Just the, the emphasis on wanting to keep it pristine in the public eye and not, yeah. you know, th there can be no blemishes here. Um, and you're dealing, you know, and you're dealing with people, look, soldiers have blemishes. It's almost like politics, right? Where, you know, you right. always want the squeaky clean image, you know, of whatever politician is running, you know, I've never told a lie. I've never cheated on my wife. Right. You know, I've, you know, there, there's no corruption here and, you know, inevitably no one can live up to those standards. Yeah. Any, uh, any, nobody, nobody who we, who we want to see run could ever get that far is, is, is the yeah. turn of phrase. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, say, um, I'd even take that a step further where the bar for what was and wasn't, and I'm going to put up scandalous. I'm using air quotes for those who aren't, mm -hmm. uh, aren't watching on, on video right now. But it's like divorce was a major thing at that time. It was okay. like a significant, it was a significant cultural impact. It, and I actually, I mean, we get into it later in the series that even when you talk about a husband and wife splitting up, that has negative repercussions for both of them at a societal level, not only on a, on a, um, you know, on a level of that. And I think, you know, they, they talk about that quite a bit between, um, I think it was, wasn't Porto, even until Reagan that divorce laws even loosened up at all. Yeah, and I think, I think even in this series, it was. I mean, obviously, Gordo's the main focus, but I think one of the other astronauts who had since remarried had to hide the fact that he'd already been married and divorced once before. So, like, divorce right. unto itself was a was a seismic thing. It's just so funny. Um, let this last sort of tangential point, and then we'll move on. But you know, I, I as a student of film, I also study Hollywood history and how debauched it was. You know. Was? in that era well how debauched it was in the late 50s early 60s um at that time and you know it's so it's like i'm I'm used to reading a lot of history where people are you know are just doing outlandish things and, and behaving i was thinking about athletes too you know i was thinking about dennis leary's joke about babe ruth you know was have a hot dog and a hummer on me um <laughs> Oh, I, 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 if they had Twitter back then, uh, John Wayne wouldn't. John Wayne wouldn't have had a career, right? <laughs> right. And so it's like I'm just used to be people of that era having no qualms about misbehaving and, and living it up. And then it's like these astronauts, like, "Hey, behave yourself, for God's sakes! Stop acting like people." Um, well, that, of, a lot of what we're talking about, especially like you know, Dave talked about fighter pilot culture. This is drinking mm -hmm. culture. This is this is work hard, play hard in the yeah. nth degree. I mean, yes. yeah, and, 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 and there is a bit of like, if you look at pilots, they are kind of like big children more so than <laughs> other adults. Yeah. Okay. You know, well, like, like, there's an element of immaturity to them, even though like they tend to be quite responsible when they're actually on the job. Uh, that actually is a great segue into episode two goodies. Uh, after being introduced into press conference, the Mercury 7 tour America to promote the NASA space program and gain funding from Congress. Glenn charms journalists and audiences alike, but the other astronauts and their families struggle under the public attention. When Cooper punches a reporter, NASA helps cover it up, and Glenn suggests that the seven get an agent to manage their public relations. 
The Seven signed a deal with Life Magazine, which gains exclusive rights to their life stories in exchange for a hefty payment. Shepard figures out that their celebrity has other perks, such as people giving them expensive cars almost for free. Oh my God, that was like my favorite part of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Shepard going on to a car lot. He was like, I'm not going to be down here all that much. Maybe he just gives me the car when I'm here. And, and, you know, and he, he gets the car by whatever deal they make. And yeah, it's then, like, I'm going to write a number on the sheet of paper and you can <laughs> tell me if it's you know, good, good or bad for you. And he like, writes like a dollar. Right, right, right. And then the next thing you see is him driving with women in the car. He's like, the goodies. Down I, I don't remember if this is the exact line, but it might as well have been like, the goodies down here are nice. <laughs> like, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, the one thing that I keyed in on this episode, and we'll, we'll go around the horn with this. Um, the thing that stuck out to me is you're a woman, you marry a soldier, the soldiers are soldiery things, and kind of like marrying a cop or a firefighter, you know what you're getting into when you marry these people. You know that they're, you know, they put their lives on the line, they do dangerous things, and they, you know, and it, it, it can be a bit edgy, but that's the life, when you love somebody, that's the life that you, um, that's the life that you prepare for. None of them married celebrities, but suddenly, they are thrown headlong into the burgeoning celebrity culture that none of them asked for, none of them are prepared for, and many of them are handling poorly. And I love the fact that the show spent time dealing with that. Like, this isn't just a kind of step-by-step -step recitation of the launching of the NASA program and subsequently the Mercury 7. It's also dealing with how people who are not, who were never asked to be famous and never... Um, necessarily wanted to be suddenly are and the necessity for it. That's the other thing that I, I found really interesting because there's an early conversation in episode two about how, again, you want funding. It's, it's always, it's always something roundabout. You, you know, we need funding. We need funding for engineers and parts and things so that we can get a rocket into space. That's the bottom line here. It's like, great. So you have to do a song and a dance. You have to do tours and you have to put on a dog and pony show and you have to get out there and make people want Congress to give their tax dollars to you. And it's like, I just want to build rockets <laughs> and go to the moon. Like, well, sing and dance, bitch. You know? It's like, it's like, so, and so they do. And, and how psychologically that, that, uh, how that affects people, how it changed the way NASA was doing things, the kind of people they brought in to help shape uh their image it's all really really fascinating stuff andrew for sure and i mean i think i'd even take what you said there a point further of not only them going into celebrity culture but them going into icon culture mm -hmm. like this is about them not being a movie star or, or what have you this is about them being honest to god heroes when you right. look at the way that they were they were represented in in terms of life magazine and how we even think of astronauts today like, well, I can't. They are still thought of pretty highly. Dave, yeah, you can well, make a joke about our, our for, for, uh, former governor general anytime you like. Now, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not, I'm not gonna, not gonna step in that one. Uh, but, but yeah, it's like, well, you're not even. It's not even just being an astronaut. It's being like the first astronaut. Like this is, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the first person to, you know, t to to be selected will be the first American or at the time the first person in space. You know, your name is going to be remembered for the rest of of history. Yeah. You know, even, even now, like Alan Shepard, John Glenn, you know, these are, these are names that anyone who they've been a passing interest in, 
you know, in, in space exploration knows, you know, like, like there's kind of like big, this, this great line, I think it was from an episode of Star Trek Enterprise, you know, what were Buzz Aldrin's first words on the moon? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, well, I don't know. It's like, exactly. Cause Armstrong made it first. Right. Yeah. Wasn't Neil Armstrong in an episode of the Big Bang Theory, and they kind of made fun of the fact that I don't think so. I think he died before. Uh, or I think it was. I think. I think it was. What was it? Buzz Aldrin. I think he was. Okay. Buzz, yeah, because it, it was. Yeah, it was Howard. He just wouldn't stop talking about going to space, and then right. show him a video of like him handing out candy. He's like, "Oh, you're wearing an astronaut suit. You, <laughs> I went to space. <laughs> Here's like, a Milky okay, Way. The Milky Way's in space. Eh? Yes, which I've been to. Yeah, <laughs> right. Buzz Aldrin was actually a legit, absolute legend. I think sometime mm-hmm. in his seventies, he went into a bar. Somebody made some comment about the the moon landings being faked, and he straight up decked the guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't condone violence, but I, I, I get it. When you think about what it takes to get your ass in a rocket and send that rocket and step out onto the moon and for someone to be like, Hollywood production. Yeah, I punch right in the throat. Absolutely yeah, well, I've, deserved. <laughs> I've dipped my toe into looking at some of the conspiracy stuff on YouTube, and th- those people can be really annoying and insufferable. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't think this is just an example. It's like, well, I don't think you actually went there. I think it was all filmed. It, it could be like, you know, totally getting up in his face and being really obnoxious about it. I have a very simple theory about this. They did, in fact, hire Stanley Kubrick to film this, but because Kubrick was such a perfectionist, he just shot it on location. Very good. Yeah, <laughs> that needs to be on the soundboard, by the way, Wait, Mark. Fuck! To... Hang on, hang on. Do that line again. <laughs> do the joke again. Well, my personal theory about it is that actually uh, they did hire Stanley Kubrick to f- film the moon landing, but what ended up happening was because Kubrick was such a perfectionist, he just decided to film it on location. Nice, and we got Pinkie Pie too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I'm prepared. Um, so sometimes I get it on the second take, but I got it. All right, so, Andrew, anything else about episode two that you want to talk about? Um, I think it covers off pretty well. Um, another funny story, a, a big reference for kind of space fans up there was a, a 10-part miniseries that HBO did about 15, 20 years ago called From the Earth to the Moon. This is one mm-hmm. of the ones that Tom Hanks did, and it's, it's really good. I so it actually gets this. into a lot of the stuff around um, some of the image management and stuff like that. Like, there is a, mm-hmm. an episode that they actually dedicate to the wives. Um, one of the funny stories, kind of the ongoing love between astronauts and Corvettes, is that I think it was <laughs> Apollo 12 or 14. Mm-hmm. The commander for that one actually bought Corvettes for the entire crew and had their position on the uh, on the spacecraft actually stenciled into the, into the driver's side. <laughs> nice. Uh, Dave, close this out here on episode two. You got anything? Uh, not a whole lot. Like to be honest, it's been so long since I watched this show that everything's kind of a blur. Episode, <laughs> episode three, then. <laughs> yeah, but yet yeah, nothing, nothing bad. <laughs> Single combat warrior preparations are underway for an unmanned rocket launch. The flight director Chris Kraft works to get his mission control team ready. The Mercury Seven test is in a mastiff that simulates spinning in space, during which Shepard clocks the shortest time when he gets dizzy. Yeah, more than dizzy. Despite a ringing in his ear, <clears throat> Shepard pushes himself to go back into the Mastiff repeatedly. Glenn pushes for more prominence and is uncomfortable when the antics of the rest of the seven who keep partying and sleeping around. Cooper and Grissom come to blows over old Air Force business. The seven see a prototype of the Mercury capsule for the first time and realize they're not expected to fly it. 
the rocket explodes during launch witnessed by seven uh, by the seven and their families yeah this was kind of a rough episode dramatically speaking um a couple of things that stand out to me one you know the reaction of the wives and everything when the rocket explodes and just the you know there's so much of what they're having to do um has to go right the first time and it often doesn't and like you you definitely feel one of the things that the show does i think really well is i i believe they represent the tension and the sense of urgency in the program well enough that the you as an audience member feel that tension and you're like you know i mean you know you might be you might actually forget that we accomplished this nasa wasn't defunded but the way it's presented in the show it's like man they were like seconds away from shit happening uh, and they're all going away and 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 that that made it a more for me that made it a more um enjoyable viewing the other thing i wanted to talk about and more so in later episodes especially the one where they have the come to jesus meeting led by glenn after alan uh gets caught in tijuana with a hooker and like who hasn't been in tijuana with a hooker i'm just saying but <laughs> well, i cannot say i've had that experience mark Never it's, been it's, to Tijuana, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, substitute whatever for Tijuana and whatever for Hooker. We've all been there. Anyway, um, <laughs> but my point being that one of the things I loved about the John Glenn character, and it's such a douchey thing, but, I, but boy, have I, I sympathized with him, where, you know, he keeps talking about, like, I am a Christian man and all of this stuff, and he's behaving. But it isn't in the, you know, in the way that he's just doing it because it's the right thing to do. He's obviously part of it, at least, is he's doing it because he, he believes that the best man, the most well-behaved man, will be the one that goes into space first. And he's, <laughs> and he's using all of that to try to, like, push everybody else down and, like, position himself ahead. And everybody else notices it, too. And he's like but I'm a Christian. It's, it's, it's not what you think it is. It's I'm just a good man and I deserve to be first. And it, and I just found that like hilarious. Virtue um, signaling before it was cool. Yeah, totally. You know, I, and gosh, who hasn't been in that place of like, you, you think you should be, you know, the one getting the achievements. You should be the one getting, you know, being at the top and somebody else gets it and you just have this like twinge of envy you know where you're just like well you're not as good as i am i know stuff about you and why are you getting it you're not deserving and how much that like later on when uh the the, uh, the head of mission control tells him like right now you're the one that <laughs> so, like you're the one that doesn't need to be up there or you're the one that doesn't deserve to be up there or something like that and I was like, ouch, man, <laughs> like you're, you're a douchebag kind of, but I kind of feel bad for you now because boy, have I been there. So those are my thoughts on this, this particular episode, the, 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 um, the shuttle, the, the rocket blowing up and then the beginnings of John Glenn kind of, this is where it gets really soapy, maneuvering himself, try, trying to maneuver himself ahead of everybody else. I'll start with you first, Dave. Um, what were your thoughts on episode three? Yeah, well, John Glenn, he definitely was of of the the Mercury Seven. He was the most publicly savvy. Like he he knew how to work a crowd. Yeah, you know, how to play to the camera. Whereas a lot of the other guys, yeah, they're they're just you know schmucks by comparison. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't, I don't mean to, to, to. Yeah, I, I don't mean to you know mean that insulting. It's just like you say, like these are people who they've never been on TV before. Right. They've never had to talk to a crowd of strangers. You know, 
it, it, they're, they're just pilots. They're just military men. Whereas real, real quick, when, many, yeah. many years ago, I had a friend who had never done like podcasts and didn't really do a lot of public speaking on a podcast. And, you know, you guys know my style. Um, you know, I just kind of, you know, I ask questions. I try to be conversational about this. I was like that with him. And so I would do like I do with you guys. I'd do a little preamble and then I'd be like, okay, so but what do you think of Return of the Jedi versus Revenge of the Sith? And like he messaged me real quick. He was like, I, you can't just ask me questions like that. I need to be more prepared. So that's a guy doing a podcast. Like you can imagine like soldiers suddenly thrust into the limelight and having to adjust to being in front of a camera all the time. Like, you know, how they might trip and fall over themselves. Yeah. So so John Glenn, he was he was a lot better equipped. I don't mm -hmm. know if it was just his personality to 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 work to work the situation to his advantage. You know, like at, at the press conferences, they'd give one or two word answers. He'd just go on these <laughs> great grand diatribes that everyone sure. loved. So you know, he, some, of us, he, some of us are born to be stars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fingers crossed. But, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, that 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 was pretty accurate. And and yeah, like with the the troubles of the program, I mean, like yeah, this stuff's hard. Like, there's a reason mm -hmm. why ro you know rocket science is considered an expression of how smart someone is. And you know, even even if you look at the things that happen now, you know, especially like SpaceX, like you think mm -hmm. of how many rockets they blow up, right. And it's also because of the part of that is just the pace of development, right? Like, you know, this is a race. They were in competition with the Soviet Union. So, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have time to, you know, to be meticulous, to go over each and every single little thing. We, we need to get those rockets out there and up. But, you know, when, when you push the envelope, it, it, you know, it pushes back. And, you know, like you say, you can look at SpaceX, which just, you know, builds a rocket, sees how it goes. It blows up. They build another rocket, see how it goes. And right. And as opposed to like Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos's company, which is like very sort of step by step, meticulously going forward, and uh, you know their their development has been incredibly slow by comparison. They also, I mean, I, I believe you when you say SpaceX blows up a lot of rockets, but it, it can't. I believe be... Elon calls them unscheduled rapid disassemblies, but. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. But I mean, it, you know, it's kind of like the it's kind of like the COVID thing where, you know, when you have daily reporting on how many COVID cases you get, it feels and, it, you know, and it might be, you know, feeling like people are getting this all the time and it's happening, you know, rather rapidly. Uh, but somebody did point out that when you report on anything as much as they were reporting on COVID, it's going to seem bigger than it might actually be. And so, you know, here all this attention is on is on NASA. There isn't as much attention anymore, so they could be blowing stuff up all the time. And you know, unless you pay close attention, it's not knowing because people aren't reporting on it constantly. It isn't like the big focus right now. Go ahead, Andrew. I was gonna, and I think there's a, there's an extra element here that we need to think about, and, and maybe I'm thinking about this a bit extra because of the the book I'm reading, the called The Bomb by uh, Fred Kaplan. And you also have to put this in context of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you weren't seeing a lot of public footage of say rocket tests, nuclear tests things like that necessarily all the right. time. But as a lot of people put this, this is an element of the propaganda race between the Soviet Union and the United States. Sure. Um, maybe going back to the episode itself for a quick second, um, I think this is the one where, you know, definitely we get, we get to see how, how savvy, um, you know, John Glenn is in, in the public arena sphere. I should probably say that most of these guys are used to some level of public speaking. They're all officers. They're probably all... They've given briefings. They're in a command position. But mm -hmm. again, giving those kinds of briefings versus giving statements to the press, especially when, like I said, you get elevated to icon status is another element. I think right. the other thing you start to establish about John in this episode, John Glenn in this episode, 
is how he's portrayed as a very disciplined individual. He's the guy that's out running every morning. He's the guy who made um, Alan Shepard quit smoking and take up running because he is just, that's just giving that uh, him that additional edge as well. So he's mm-hmm. not necessarily, his self-righteousness isn't necessarily what he thinks he's going to get by on because he's doing all the extra work for it too, but that's certainly giving him what he thinks is an edge. Sure. We definitely have to come back to this entire plot element when they have the come to Jesus meeting in a couple episodes. Yes. So let's get to it. Uh, episode four. And then after this, we'll, uh, we'll take a momentary break. The Russian space program achieves another milestone when their probe takes pictures of the far side of the moon where Pink Floyd is. Eh? All right. Yeah. I, I, uh, I got the reference. Thank you. Um, NASA... <laughs> Thanks cap. Uh, NASA brings in rocket scientist and former Nazi Werner von Braun, who clashes with Kraft. The seven confront Gilruth over their role in the program. Glenn spends Christmas lobbying for presidential candidate John F. Kennedy. Shepard and his wife Louise adopt Louise's orphan niece. Cooper is contacted by his ex-lover, Lurleen, which forces his confrontation and reconciliation with uh, Trudy. All right, so... I'll be honest with you, outside of the uh, confrontation with the former Nazi scientist, which I was a little shocked by, and I'll, and I'll tell you why in a second. I don't remember that much about this episode, so I'll, t- I'll talk about that. I was a little surprised that there was internal conflict among the people in NASA after, you know, when they realize that they're up against it, you know, the whole thing stands on the, the edge of a knife. And they're like, okay, well, we have this former Nazi uh, rocket scientist, and he's going to help you, and we're going get, to get this in the high gear. And there's an objection to it. We adopted a whole lot of Nazi scientists. Like, the, isn't, like, the, the whole Adam, uh, the Manhattan Project, like, half ex-Nazi scientists and shit, or, you know, people who defected from Germany, which I guess is two different things. But still, like, there were a lot of people who came over from Germany on all sides of that war who landed in the American science program in different areas. So it was, a you know, the, I, I, I mean, maybe he reacted that way in real life. Maybe it was over-dramatized just to provide dramatic tension in the show. But still, I was a little, you know, given, given our propensity for adopting those folks into, uh, into the sciences here in large quantities, I was kind of shocked they, in either way, it either really happened or it was a plot element here. A little, little, um, that was a little yeah. weird to me. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah. Or, yeah, Dave, that... Go ahead. Go ahead, oh. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead Dave. Standoff where no one's going to let the other one. Yeah. Go okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. I so, you know, like one of, one of the tough things about the second world war is Germany has really good engineers. Right. You know, like, and, and they were working on some pretty, you know, pretty advanced stuff there. Like you had the V1 and V2 rockets, for example, which was beyond technology any of the allies had. Uh, you know, the ME262, the first jet-powered airplane, you know, like they were ahead of of the allies on that one too. Like, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't ahead of, of the allies on everything. Like, for example, the Manhattan Project, you know, the, the nuclear bomb was way, way in advance of what the Germans were working on at the same time. So, yeah, when... When the Allies conquered Germany, like there was a huge race between the Soviet Union and the United States, basically to get as many of these scientists and engineers from Germany as possible. 
you know, like on the American side, it was like I think Operation Paperclip was the name. Yep. So yes. it was, you know, these, these are, these are, you know, these are their best minds. We can get them and add their ability to our own to make us stronger for, you know, the next conflict being the Cold War. Uh, like even if you look at like, say, uh, you know, the F-86 Sabre fighter jet and the MiG-15 fighter jet, you know, these are both made in different countries, but you can mm -hmm. definitely tell that they're very similar in layout and they bear a striking resemblance to like a German plane that was on the drawing board at the time. So you can sort of see the common DNA. So it, I was going to say, it, I think there was pretty like, reportedly very significant brain drain from Germany post-World War II. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, it's kind of funny. I look at it like, you know, it's like the entertainment industry has just discovered this. So they're like, wait a minute, Von Braun was a Nazi. You know? Nazis? No! We worked no. with Nazis. And, and it's actually kind that. of a, yeah, kind of like a, I mean, I, I haven't done enough research to know like how much Von Braun was on like a full Nazi. Like you have this sort of mm -hmm. thing after the war where there was this sort of sifting through the whole you know, like party to decide, you know, like who, who was like a true believer versus right. who was just there because it was their job. Right. My like, understanding you know, is both the Nazi party and the communist party was very much like, well, do you want a job? You know, be a smarty, come and join the Nazi party. And it was the same thing. in, in <laughs> it was the same thing. <laughs> it was the same thing in um, the Soviet union where it was like, who knows what people really believe. They just know that in order to get the job with the good pay, you had to be a communist. Yeah. Yeah, so there's kind of things that yeah, like who who is a true believer, whereas yeah, mm -hmm. who is just there because you know it's a government job, right? Um, but yeah, again, that's a whole other podcast. And uh, so, well, like one interesting theory I heard as to like why the Soviets did so well early on in the space race is because in America there was that attempt to sort of you know like go through all the scientists and investigate them and you know find out you know, who was this real Nazi who. Uh, who would be mm -hmm. like, a, it was called like denazified as in like, okay, like you were actually, you know, a good person. You were just, you know, on, in a bad place at the time. Right. Whereas the Soviets, they didn't care about that. You know, <laughs> Stalin murdered more people in peacetime than Hitler did during the war. Nazi, do you, you know, know how like, to build a rocket? Yeah, it's like, we don't care if you oversaw a death camp. You know, we, we just like buried 50,000 Poles in a mass grave because really? we didn't like the way they were looking at us, you know, Who hasn't whatever. committed a genocide. Come on, we need rockets. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's kind of funny from, from that perspective. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it was, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to see Hollywood wrap there, you know, like, you know, like, Oh, we found this new thing. It's so exciting. Yeah. Well, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny, especially with Von Braun, because the one thing they show in the series is that he was already building rockets. Like this was not just, we're bringing this guy in with, with zero background. He's been, you know, had his feet up for the last 15 years. He was actually building other rockets. And I wonder if there was maybe some politics within NASA over which rocket they wanted to use. Mm -hmm. I think if I remember right, the Atlas rocket was something the air force was pushing a lot. And then the redstone was something else. And yeah, again, talking Cold War and talking about money in the cold war specifically, like, a lot of the conversation that was going on was around how much money are you getting for rockets? How much money are you sending to the air force? How much money are you sending to the Navy and how much money are you sending to NASA? And how can you then use any money that goes to NASA to then justify more money for your own service? Right. Yeah. Like I think the redstone was actually developed as a uh, ballistic missile. I think Atlas might've been as. Or they say the redstone. Yeah. yeah maybe I, I have to look it up, but it's also kind of interesting them talking about Von Braun because Von Braun has actually been, he plays a pretty key um, place in another movie about, again, referencing about 15 years ago called October Sky. 
Yeah, excellent really movie, good, by the way. Great movie um, about uh, a uh, uh, current NASA, actually still working NASA administrator named Homer Hickam, who, mm-hmm. who actually ended up meeting Von Braun because he was doing all this rocket stuff in the early 1950s. By the way, if you ever want a real laugh, Homer Hickam unto himself is also a legend. Uh, apparently he got, there was somebody who had gotten an internship at NASA, went mm-hmm. online, said in rather blue language how excited they were. Yeah, they were um, a bit of a tool about it. They were a bit of a tool about it. He came up and said, eh, maybe you should watch your language a little bit. And it's like, and they hit him. Yeah, they didn't hit him with basically, F, F you, I'm working for NASA. That. Yeah, exactly. It's like, F you, I'm working for NASA. It's like, how about that? I'm director, pers- or I'm director of space operations or something like that. So... Um, work right. out so well, but anyway. Anything else about, um, I mean, I brought up the Von Braun thing. A- Andrew, I'll keep going with you. Anything else about episode four that stands out to you? Uh, let me just remember that one again really quick. Um, yeah, I guess this one. I mean, yeah, this one definitely got interesting. I mean, you, you, you know, again, got to see John Glenn, the politician. You got yeah. him trying to, to manage around the whole idea that they were afraid of his not unusual that when you change a government administration, uh oh, my program might be disappearing. Versus, versus what it is him trying to, trying to do that and getting this probably much, much more skeptical scientist from the, the the Kennedy side of things to come in and start asking questions and start to establish that tension as well. Not only saying that the people who started this program are skeptical about it, but the people who might come in after them are more skeptical. Yeah, and and the whole bit where it's like the administrators at NASA are like, wait, you're you're doing what? <laughs> you know, it's like you're 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 doing all this without our knowledge, so you know, we don't know what's what's hitting it. As you know, you're you're messing with the game for your own benefit, but you might actually end up screwing everyone over in the process. Um. All right. So let's take a quick pause here and talk to you about Grammarly. Uh, Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. They didn't need Grammarly to write this show. They wrote it just fine. Not a whole lot of not a, not a whole lot of things to fix here. All right. Uh, episode five, the Konakai Seance. I believe this is the come to Jesus meeting. Yep. Uh, the seven anticipate the release of the flight order soon. Trudy meets aviator Jerry Cobb, who wants Trudy's help to form a women's astronaut corp with Trudy as one of the recruits. The ringing in Shepard's ear worsens. After a fellow test pilot dies, the seven bond by sharing stories about their close calls with death. Cooper and Grissom resolve their past conflict. Shepard confesses to Glenn that a photographer caught him in in an indiscretion, the aforementioned hooker in Tijuana. Glenn helps bury the incident, but Shepard is angered that Glenn got NASA involved and accuses him of trying to sabotage Shepard's reputation. On the day to decide the flight order, the seven are told that they will vote among themselves who will be first, and Shepard gets the spot. Um, this is a great episode. This might actually be my favorite. The come to Jesus meeting is the highlight of this thing. Just the, you know, the whole, like the guy playing John Glenn, you know, talking about like, I, I, as Christian appreciate the lore of a woman. I'm not blind. <laughs> like <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude. Um, 
it's so funny the relationship you know between glenn and shepherd you know because shepherd is just being who he is and again you know having this real difficulty like trying to figure out how to be shepherd but also be the be the kind of guy that's going to go into space in this era and in time and he's having a hard time reconciling and he's making mistakes and then it's like you know and he goes to glenn who's his competitor for help and then he gets angry that that that, that john glenn helped <laughs> like and i'm watching this and it's a very human thing that he's doing like from that standpoint you know acting irrationally like i was with the character i was i i understood what was happening in those scenes but it's just from a purely objective perspective on it it was like you asked for help got the help then got mad <laughs> that the help helped like you know they're no making this guy happy and him sort of descending into madness momentarily and be like this isn't about you helping me this is about you just wanting to be first and you know, and then poor John Glenn, who's like, I'm trying to keep this fucking shit show from going into the ditch. And everyone's like, huh, you're yeah, just you are, yourself. Like, you were crying and begging on your knees <laughs> right. in my hotel room last night at two in the morning. I was up till five calling every person I could find to, to you know, to beg for them not to run the story. And the moment I say, hey, I sure helped you out last night. You say, screw you, you virtual signaling dick. Right. You yeah. know, and then he's sitting there like, just like, I've done everything you guys have asked and more, and I've saved you all from yourselves. And everyone's reaction is like, yeah. whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 Excuse me for having a moment of thinking, yay, go me. <laughs> and it is, it, it, that is the thing about this episode and about the come to Jesus meeting is that it is this really interesting cycle of, of, because I think there was finally, I think there is this interesting cycle between all all the astronauts because you finally had some moments where where John was joining in with the rest of the guys and having a drink with them, not the mm -hmm. same level as everybody else. They were all out there, all sharing stories. Quick side note: I think one of the other interesting things about John Glenn as a character and what might have contributed to the difference in his behavior is that mm -hmm. I think out of the guys they had, he was one of the very few like guys who had seen combat. Mm -hmm. All these other guys have been in service, but I think John Glenn had flown in both World War II and Korea, and I think he had actually shot down a few aircraft in Korea. So I mean, he uh, he definitely had uh, a different experience base. But it kind of does this zigzag where it's like he's part of the group, and then Shepard going to him takes him further into the group, and then you know he helps him. Then they kind of have the meeting, and to Glenn's credit, he's not putting anyone's name on this. Mm -hmm. Like he, he's trying to keep it, then Shepard kind of fesses up to everybody else. He yeah, I think it's just Glenn. Uh, he he overstepped his boundaries there when he sort of said, you know, like he acted like the boss of all the oh yeah the astronauts in that moment, and I think that's kind of where they went. Oh, hang on, who who do you think you are here? But yep. but that's why I sympathize with him because and, and and I'll let you go back, Andrew. But like he's not wrong, and I think that's the that's the really interesting way that the movie is written is that he's right but it's it's like when you're fighting with your wife and you know you're right and she's a lunatic but it doesn't matter my <laughs> wife know? is never a lunatic okay sure she might listen like to a, this she's never never a lunatic perfect yeah it's, it's like that tiktok where it's like you know is that girl pretty no you know do you want to no is your wife yes to you, next to you yes um <laughs> but we've all been through this as married men or you know 
anybody in a relationship where the other person is dead ass wrong and you know they're wrong and they're absolutely crazy, but it's like it's not always about being right. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. the thing with John Glenn here is like you might be in the right, but you still have to know how to navigate the relationship you have with these people so as to not come across as self-righteous because that's right. almost worse than being in the wrong. Go ahead. Absolutely. And I think that that's exactly what I picked up on in that scene is where he went from being right to self-righteous on some yeah. level where I think he was trying to justify himself, but the way he said it just made it sound worse. Because I right. think as soon as you start, you know, depending on, on where you go in that sort of thing, if people start proselytizing to me, I certainly turn the listening listening knob down quite a bit. I'm I'm not going to take it as much, but there is that. I think that's you know definitely part of that tension, and it definitely sows the seeds of where the relationship is between him and Glenn for the rest of, rest of the series as well. He um he unknowingly became unknowingly in in the the character self became sanctimonious. Yes, and actually, at that point, word. everything he said becomes poison even if it's factually correct. If you bang hookers, we will lose funding. Yes, but could you use another word than bang hookers? Because <laughs> that yeah. makes it sound gross. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> but I think the other interesting part is that I think he then takes that perception on moving forward. Mm -hmm. when he's, and that, that kind of influences his thought around, let's start looking at writing the letters in the next couple of episodes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So he almost... He almost kind of falls into his the perception that everybody else has of him. Yes, he he definitely becomes his own worst enemy as the show starts to draw to a conclusion. Dave, jump in here. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think we mostly said what needed to be said there. Yeah, it's it's he he put himself above the group, even mm -hmm. if he didn't consciously understand it. Like if he had just sort of slipped this into like a, a conversation where they're all just you know shooting the shit together or whatnot it probably would have been fine. It's like, Oh yeah, John has a point, you know, good, good on John. But the moment where he's like, I have gathered you all here today, you know, <laughs> me standing above you. I, I have ordered room service, you know, like I, 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 I am, you know, I am the pilot candidate daddy. Now, you know, you're all my boys and I am going to shepherd you. And right. And then they're like, you know, you know, you know, who the heck do you think you are, John? Yeah. Like, you know, you like, you, you don't have any title above us, right? You're, you're another done. candidate. Who died and made you the Jesus? Yeah, that, that kind of thing. And I think at that moment with those types of personalities, especially in that pressure cooker competition, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, it was just sort of too much. And they're like, you know, they, then they, they lash out, you know, like, yeah, like who, who, who the hell do you think you are? Yeah, you know, we're, 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 not, we're not doing this. Why moving forward, they started to establish commanders for these sorts of crews. So then, yeah. then they could, you know, they could have somebody they could trust, someone they could talk to, and someone they could work with through these issues. I think... In this case, this is one of those cases where you have a whole bunch of, you know, hyper alpha personalities running around and nobody is nominally in charge of the group. Right. It's all chiefs and no Indians. Yeah. Um, but again, this is this is the first time doing this, you know, so sure. so there was there were a lot of lessons learned both technically and organizationally. And I do appreciate how all the characters actions for the most part make sense because it's the mm -hmm. worst thing when you just have like stupidity being the motivation Something like like the whole you know two characters get the wrong idea if they just sat down and talked to each other for five minutes it's like oh that's what really happened okay you know why are we yeah. fighting about this anymore but so like you know I understand why John did what he did I understand how why you know Alan reacted the way he did and everyone else did you know like it all makes sense they did the wrong things 
-hmm. but you understand exactly what led them to to the situation. So I want to bring up one other point and they deal with it a little bit more, I think in the next episode. Um, And that is, I I meant to say this before, by the way, another really good uh, movie about space and how difficult it is. And, you know, and the amount of math that goes into it, hidden figures, if you haven't seen it, you should, Uh, especially if you've got daughters. Um, I know Andrew, you have at least one. Um, I haven't shown it to her, but that is a great movie. It, yeah, it really is one I want to show Lily when I get a chance. Uh, you know, but one of the things it talks about, besides how, you know how hard it is to be black and a woman in the late nineteen fifties, early sixties, is how much. But you know, if you were off by an integer, you know, in any part of this process, and at that point they were trying to get to the moon, um, how disastrous it could be. Oh, you know, yeah. we're talking like the technical aspects of building a rocket. You know, a wire out of place here, a thing out of place there, and your whole and the whole thing blows up. It was the same thing with just getting thing A to place B. And if you were off by an integer, it was a disaster and you could kill somebody uh, and how much work and how much math that took. Um, but that's a lead into speaking of women. This is about in the, the place in the show where they start to point at from about 25 yards away, the beginning of the women's space program. And you know, it reminded me of the morning show on, I think it's Apple Plus. I haven't watched and it yet. It, it, in the, on the one hand, they're telling this interesting story about um, this sort of wild, unpredictable character stepping into this position where she has to tidy herself up and behave and, you know, and the, and the tension therein. But they were also telling a Me Too story. And unfortunately, at least for me, the Me Too story felt kind of hackneyed and tacked on and forced in, you know, like we have to be speaking to this moment in time. Um, But I'm not entirely sure what, weirdly, how much better that made the show. Okay, how that relates to this. They just sort of injected this part with the women. And in the next episode or so where Gordo makes the stupid remark about if we sent the chimp into space, we can send a woman. You know, and and, and lo and behold, it gets him in trouble with his wife. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. I, Amateur mistake. Yeah, really. You know, if I, if I had a nickel for every time I compared a monkey to my wife, Anyway, yeah, that, that, um, that was that was a dude. You should have figured that one out before you opened your mouth. Yeah, um, I guess. But my question to you guys, and it's just sort of a thought exercise: Did the show really need this plot element? Because they don't. It, it's used to kind of show you the character flaws of Gordo, and you know, and it's a moment to sort of say, "Hey, there were women too. There were women that were a part of this, and we don't want to leave them out." But that's, but that's what I'm getting at. In the story they're telling, which is really about Alan Shepard and John Glenn, did we really need this extra thing with the women that's only for an episode or two and affects one character, but I feel like if you'd cut it, you wouldn't have lost anything. Like, And I'm not saying they don't deserve their story to be told. I don't know if this was the vehicle to tell that story, the w- especially the way they did it. So just sort of my thought about that part of it, Andrew. I think it's really interesting and, and actually um, an interesting side note on the women's space program that, that came up mm-hmm. during this was, um, of course, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Jeff Bezos went up with a selected crew 
And what they actually did was break a record for the oldest person in space, mm-hmm. being a woman who was the youngest member of that program when it took place in the 1960s. Wow. And she was actually two years older than John Glenn when he went up in the 90s to then take the record at the time. So um, it's interesting. I think it's an, it's an interesting story. And I think some of this, if I had to wager, this was something they were setting up for season two. Okay. Because, I mean, we're looking at this at one season because as of right now, it's canceled. Would I be surprised if they were going to set this up as being an entire subplot going into season going into season two? I think that makes perfect sense. Now, if we were just doing this as we were going to do this as eight episodes of Alan Shepard getting into space and the story of these three guys, and at the end you had a Chiron of what everyone else did next, then yeah, I think there's probably space to remove that story. But I really do think it's something mm-hmm. they were setting up for the second season. Yeah. Um, all right. If you're playing Rattle Legend Broadcasting Bingo, um, I th- want to say like late in season two or three of The Wire. I don't remember which one. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, there's there's like a setup for the next season. Um, it had nothing to do with anything else going on, but it was definitely like they dropped that in and then they just sort of forgot about it. But it was like, we're going to leave the seed here and we'll water it next season and watch it grow. That's what it's there for. But we can't, we don't have any more time to deal with this right now. And it was like a really weird, like late season drop. So you might be right. Um, your quick thoughts, David, and then we'll move on to the next episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I kind of agree with Andrew that it's probably something they're going to revisit in uh, later seasons because there certainly is mm-hmm. more to that story. Um, yeah, like I'm pretty sure this wasn't really part of the original novel. It was more, and yeah, like you don't. It doesn't need to be in this story because this is focusing on the Mercury Seven and that aspect of the space program. But uh, it's uh, kind of interesting because, like you mentioned, that you know this is the sort of thing that Hollywood has just discovered that oh, you know, we had Nazi scientists working in the space program, and the other one being yeah, the Mercury Twelve. Because there's right. another show by uh, Ronald Moore called uh, For All Mankind, which is mm-hmm. more of a what if, what if the Russians had beat us to the beat us to the moon, and sort of this sort of alternate history of how the space program might have gone, and they they also revisit the Mercury Twelve uh, in that one. I actually think Jerry Cobb is actually a character in in the show, but I've actually been uh, reading a book lately uh, called uh, Fighting for Space: uh, Two Pilots. And their historic battle for female space flight by Amy Shira Titel. I hope I pronounced that right. Mm-hmm. She's like a Canadian author. She was like a worked for the Discovery Channel as their SpaceX expert. She has a, a video cast on YouTube called Vintage Space, and she's yeah, like she actually dug into this in a lot more detail and uh, sort of looked in it and. Uh, and yeah, it's basically sort of a, a biography of one Jerry Cobb and also Jackie Cochran, another who's sort of another big woman uh, pushing this program. Very, very interesting people. Like I know your your young feminist daughter. This this would be a book that she would love. Like put it on your birthday Christmas list. It it would be great reading for her. Fighting for space, uh, you said. Yeah, fighting for space. I can send you a link to it uh, afterwards. But I highly recommend. It. I'm about halfway through it, so I, it's just at the beginning of the Mercury program but yeah it sort of goes into a bit of the politics behind the scenes the culture at the time and uh, I've I've heard an interview with the the author and she sort of says that you know like you know the the easy thing to think is like it was just oh the patriarchy squashed it because grr patriarchy but uh, there are a lot of other factors into the Mercury 12 and like behind their sort of rise and the cancellation and it wasn't all patriarchy and sexism though certainly those attitudes were there Mm -hmm. but it was 
you know, also a lot of politics, uh, rushing things, uh, you know, even politics within the, the group itself. So uh, I'm curious to see how they would portray it in f- future seasons, if they'll sort of go into the details, but like, absolutely like uh, Jackie Cochran, especially like you could make a phenomenal movie or miniseries just about her life. She's, she's a, pr- a pretty incredible person. What she's managed to do like friends with like, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, I think she saved um, Lyndon Johnson's life when he was on campaign for governor. Like he he had, he had a kidney stone that almost got him, but she was able to sort of fly him to the Mayo Clinic sort of uh, behind the scenes without any public knowledge. And they were able to fix him up. In fact, like when he, when he won the governorial race, a reporter asked him the question, like, you know, is there anyone else you'd like to thank you know, that this wouldn't have been possible without? And he said, a woman, not my wife. (laughs) Uh, Nice. So, uh, so yeah, like she's like she was close friends with Amelia Earhart, uh, Chuck Yeager. In fact, like she's the first day she met Chuck Yeager, she went up to him and she said, "You know, if I was born a man, I'd be standing where you are right now." <laughs> so uh, right. she she's she a woman with a lot of chutzpah. It's 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 quite a fascinating story. Uh, cool. Yeah. Again, yeah. My, but and it'd be cool if, if it definitely it deserves to be told somewhere. But yeah, I'm not sure if it's in this show itself, but. Uh, but yeah, like if it was sort of something to tell alongside the story that they're telling now, I mean, these were definitely historic events, and like that did get a lot of media attention. The idea of uh, women astronauts at the time, sure. and to put things in context, the uh, Soviets set up sent up a woman in '63. Yeah. Okay. Um, Vostok. NASA holds a press conference to announce that Shepard, Grissom, and Glenn will be the first team to be launched into space, though they deny that there's a ranking order for the three. Glenn realizes that keeping the order secret means that NASA can still change their mind, and despite his wife Anne's disapproval, writes letters to NASA, is what we were talking about before, about Shepard's misconduct. Two months before launch, PSAC requests extensive tests of the astronauts. Despite Shepard's ear problem, his demonstration is a success. Slayton is taken out of the seven when his heart arrhythmia is discovered. Shepard's launch is delayed for a test launch with a chimpanzee. The test is successful, but the delay allows the Russians to be the first to send a man into space with Yuri uh, Gagarin. We, we've talked about a lot of this, so I don't have a whole lot more to add. Andrew, anything about this episode? Um, there was something I was just thinking of as I was looking at the... Uh, the um... you know, one interesting thing this does bring up is the whole uh, element of... Um of the flight order, not anyone actually knowing who it was and when, which I think creates some tension internally. I think particularly for, for Glenn, from his point of view, thinking that even though nobody else knows the order, he knows the order and the other astronauts do. So he thinks he can, um, he can, uh, he can change it. Um, I do want to really touch on quickly, probably one of my favorite elements of this entire series is actually the relationship between um between Glenn and, and his wife, actually, I thought those two characters and the way they were written and the way the two actors were had really great, um, really great chemistry with each other. I think the relationship was really interesting. You know, she definitely was somebody who was willing to call him on his own bullshit when he was full of it. And this was definitely mm-hmm. one of those cases when he was full of it. Um, one thing I did a little reading on the letters did happen. Apparently there was only ever one though. Okay. That was no, not a, not a dozen. <laughs> Not dozens, no. <laughs> okay. And then, of course, we have the infamous gaffe of uh, of of uh, Gordon Cooper just making that awful comment during the uh, the uh, press conference. Yeah, foot in mouth. Um, David, anything about this episode? 
Yeah, so getting to the whole chimp thing is, uh, yeah, I think another thing they sort of show also with the whole, like, will, will or will not the pod be remotely piloted is the sort of white scarf syndrome that you get with the with the pilots is, you know, like pilots, they like to fly. They like to, you know, be at the controls. They don't like handing things over to automation as much. Mm-hmm. Like, you, like uh, nowadays you get that more with, with, like, fighter pilots and dealing with the, you know, the oncoming more increased automation you know, like AI wingmen and the possibility of eventually AI, you know, fighters that will replace them. I mean, that's seems to be farther away than we initially thought, but just that sort of idea, like, you know, drone pilots can't really strut their stuff. It's there. It's not really considered as, as cool a job as being in, in the cockpit, despite okay. the effectivity. But again, that's, that's a whole other debate. So, so yeah, like their whole sort of, you know, like, you know, you're sending a chimp up to replace us, you know, that we're, we feel kind of insulted at that. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, you know, like, like, why are we here? What's what's our job? You know, you put mm-hmm. us through the ringer with all these tests, and then in the end, it's just like you just have to sit in the chair for fifteen minutes. Uh, I think like so. even like uh, to go back to uh, another excellent book that if you're into military aviation history, uh, John Boyd, uh, who's yep. sort of a very famous fighter pilot, he was sort of talking like back when he was starting flying, which is around this era. Like some of the attitude from a lot of fighter pilots is, you know, we don't want to be astronauts. You know, we don't want to just sit in a tin can and be fired up into the atmosphere and drop back down again. You know, we want to touch the stick, touch the throttle, crank and bank, actually fly and develop these skills and, you know, and, and, and be good at our jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we, we don't just want to be like, okay, John, push the number two APU manifold switch. Okay. Now, you know, enter coordinates for INS alignment. You know, I get this. It's, this isn't what you sign up for. You want to, you know, kick the tires and light the fires. Yeah. Go Funny, through the reminds me in an earlier part of the season where they first get a look at the Mercury 7 and they're like, where are the windows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I can't even see outside. Uh, and, right. and actually, just one thing that just popped up, uh, going back to the come to Jesus moment. Uh, another thing is about pilots is, you know, they, they rag on each other a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And that's because pilots have egos. They do. Some are bigger than others. I say that's it's, a guy thing. That's something Robert And it's part of a guy thing. Yeah. And guys so, talk to each other. Yeah. So, so a lot of that is also like, you know, John thinks he's better than us. We need mm-hmm. to, we, we need to, to, to show him that he's not just yeah. so that you know, he doesn't get so full of himself and he comes back down, you know, so it, it, it's, a, it's sort of like a self-policing thing in, in sort of the pilot community of just making sure that people have some degree of humility. Cause the moment you think that, you know, you're above it all, that's generally when things happen that get you killed. Sure. Makes sense. And there's a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of testing in terms of pressure as well, where it's like, you know, if you can take my ball busting, then you can also take whatever's going to be thrown at you and things like that. And it's always mutual. And you can see that there, you know, there's a little bit there going back a couple episodes to the, the Kona Kai seance talking about, you know, when they're all around and uh, I think it's Cooper and um, Gus Grissom kind of burying the hatchet over their issue and stuff like that. It is somewhat kind of a, a, a trust establishing kind of behavior as well. Yeah, like even like, you know, you know, like the call signs fighter pilots use, you know, like you watch Top Gun, it's like, you know, Maverick, Goose, Iceman, nobody gets those call signs. Those are not cool. Nobody. No call signs are that cool. Yeah, like it, it, like it, if you showed up on a base and saying my call sign's Maverick, they would just be like, bullshit. You know, like, <laughs> Apparently, yeah. your call sign's Ham Sandwich. Yeah, call well, sign uh, Ham Sandwich may, might be out there. One of the yeah. ones I've heard that's awesome is Fungus, which says, <laughs> fuck you, new guy, you suck. <laughs> yeah, a lot of acronyms, lots of like it's it's either like a pun uh, based on your name or something really yeah something really stupid that you did. Uh, like I think there was like one pilot he like flipped his aircraft over on the ground or something. 
And so his, so his call sign was Sue, spelled T-S-U for this side up. <laughs> <laughs> and then she painted it on the side of his plane with a little arrow. <laughs> There's a, and I, I said it just now just to kind of explain the context of it. There's a great Pat Oswalt joke where he's talking about Black Angus, the, uh, the steakhouse. And he was like, it's a gauntlet of angry food. And so he keeps doing like a narration of a guy doing a Black Angus commercial. And, and you know, and, at, and he goes through this whole thing. You know, doors locked from the outside. <laughs> you know, it's just, he goes on and on at the very end of it. He's like, at Black Angus, your name is Peaches. That's <laughs> like, what I'm thinking about now. You know, it's like, my call sign's Maverick. No, it isn't Peaches. Get in the cockpit, Peaches. Yeah, it's probably the best story I heard about that is the actual advisor they had for the original Top Gun. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, there was some guy in his squadron leaving who had the call sign Viper, and he's like, that's a good call sign. So he just kept on telling everyone, yeah, Viper, Viper, my call sign's Viper. Yeah, that's me, Viper. And, and it kind of worked for a time. But then they kind of cottoned on, and now his call sign's Diaper. <laughs> <laughs> Last tangential thing yeah. here, but... Um... Dana Carvey, I think it was, was doing a bit about, like, can you imagine the first time Sting, not the wrestler, but the musician, told started telling the people around him to refer to him as Sting? It's like, whatever, Gordo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling you fucking sure thing, Sting. Paul. What was that? What about Bono? Sure thing, Paul. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Prince is just over in the corner laughing his ass off. <laughs> All Amateurs. Right. Ziggurat. Uh, following the Russian space flight in the Bay of Pigs, President Kennedy pull, puts full support behind Shepard Space Launch, which will be open to the press and spectators. News about the Women's Astronaut Corp comes out. When Cooper is questioned about it at a press conference, he makes a joke about it. The aforementioned, if they can send a chimp, they can send a woman. And uh, <laughs> oddly enough, his wife is a little pissed. Um, I wonder why. I haven't seen that one coming. Shepard finds out about Glenn's letters against him. Glenn copes with people assuming that he'll be the first to fly. Uh, Luis is told about Shepard's indiscretion. Inclement weather delays Shepard's launch by two days. But Shepard Welcome to is, aviation. <laughs> but Shepard is spotted in his flight suit by the press, revealing to all that he'll be the first American to go to space. Uh, is this the episode where Shepard and Glenn have the argument on the roof and Glenn is like standing on the edge of the building? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a tense scene. You know, like I said, you know, we were talking, we, we, we sort of drift back and forth between talking about the drama of it all and, you know, the actual representation of history. But I'll tell you, like, this is the most dramatic, most tense scene in the entire show, at least for me. You know, Alan sort of demonstrating and, you know, and symbolically showing, like, we lit, you know, like you guys were talking before, we live a certain way. Our psychology is a certain way in order to do the job that we're being asked to do, which is dangerous and in some cases deadly. You can't, there's an argument to be made for you can't live, live timidly, you know, and, and therein lies, I think, the sort of philosophical and dramatic um, tension between Glenn and Shepard, because you have one that says, somehow I am able to be a Marine and be, maybe not timid is the best word, but be um, contained, composed. Yep. And Shepard's like, no, that's how you get killed. You got to be, you got to live on the edge, man. You know, you have to have a need for speed. Wrong movie. Um, Yeah, you know, but you really, you have to, you have to. It's all about family, Andrew. No, Um, you have to, (laughs) but I am <laughs> but I am thinking like you have to live a hundred and you know at 110 miles an hour with your foot, you know, mashing the gas. 
and it's just it's two different and i don't and and the nice thing about the show is that it, it i like when shows present two opposite ideas but let the viewer decide as opposed to taking a position i don't think the show does i mean to the degree that they have to be somewhat accurate in, in what actually happened um there's only so much of a position they could take but i do think that like shepherd and glenn are both shown to be you know shown warts and all and it's up to you as the viewer to decide who is in the right uh so it's one of the things i thought the show handled well dave yeah, I like as to that whole image of you know the you know I, I spit at the rules, I you know balk at you know authority sort of image. Like those kinds of people, to my knowledge, don't actually last very long in that kind of work. They end mm -hmm. up by either getting washed out of the program or smoking craters in the ground pretty yes. quickly. Yep. Um, but yeah, there there certainly is that sort of playboy push push the envelope attitude. That sort of you know willingness to take on risk but there's still that sort of professionalism where they know what they're doing enough and they know where not to break the rules enough that they're they're safe because like a lot of this stuff it's it's very group oriented like like the lone wolf pilot up there on his own single-handedly taking taking out the enemy that that doesn't happen it's 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 more like you know like a football game where you know like you've got your team and your plays and you know everyone mutually supporting each other and it's just you know nobody wants to be up there without anyone flying with them that they're like you know I trust this guy with my life mm -hmm. um so now, now now I think in this show they don't kind of go overboard into that sort of you know uh, maverick or uh, Doug Masters territory of just you know this this person's you know one step away from total insanity but uh <laughs> But yeah, you do have this sort of like more stoic, you know, measured John Glenn versus the more hedonistic Shepard. Yeah. But uh, but I'd be willing to bet like if you get both men in the cockpit, they're both pretty similar in terms of responsibility and professionalism. Right. In terms of what they do. But but yeah, it's like you know, if, if you want someone who's going to fly an airplane faster than an airplane's ever been flown before, you know, you need someone who's kind of you know willing to take on that risk and is not afraid to go in and do that. And and yeah, they, they might not always be the most presentable person in the world. Andrew, your thoughts? I think, yeah, this is definitely a strong one. The um, the rooftop conversation I thought was great. And I thought we've got, it's kind of interesting. The show kind of saves its thesis until later on in it. And I think what it brings down to is the idea of hunger and being able to acknowledge that. Because I think a big part of what Shepard was saying on there is he was saying to Glenn, it's like, yeah, I want this. But I'm honest enough to actually say I want it. You want it to, you want it every bit as badly as I do, but you're putting up this whole veil of I'm doing it for everybody. I'm doing it for this, that, and the other thing. And there's Glenn wanted to be begged to do it. That's the difference. Yes. He thought, you he know, thought he was endowed by God to do it as opposed to, right. He was, I don't know if I want to say entitled, but there's a little bit of that in there. No, you can say it. He's definitely, he was definitely yeah. entitled. He thought he was destined for it. Right. Because I am this, you know, hardworking, God-fearing, you know, mm -hmm. disciplined, stoic. All-American. And therefore all American I am entitled to the, you know, to the most precious fruit. Where yeah. Shepard's like, what if I just shove you in the pool and took it? What are you yeah, going to do? Exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, I, they've all said it. it's like every other guy on here is a qualified aviator who could all do this. I mean, basically all of these guys ended up going to space at one point or another. And actually even um, Deke Slayton ended up going up in 75. But, um, you know, I think that turns into the thesis for the next two episodes of this whole idea of hunger. When mm -hmm. we get into the next episode and, 
and John Glenn kind of acknowledges that when he has that, that drink, and I can't remember who it was with, trying to convince him about the next stage. And he's like, no, we all have to be hungry for it. Nationally, we have to be hungry for it. And I think that really turns into what the thesis of this show is. And again, it, 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 it asked it as an open question, though. Like you said, it, it mm -hmm. doesn't say this is exactly what you need to do. All right. And finally, the glorious conclusion, flight. Shepard's flight on Freedom 7 is a success. Afterwards, Shepard is at <laughs> roll credits. Wait, no, there's still more show. Uh, after afterward, Shepard is given accolades and a parade, but he confesses to Glenn that he is dissatisfied with the shortness and the simplicity of his flight and is searching for the next big thing. I, real quick, I mentioned that to my wife recently that the anticipation of a thing for me, ha, I've learned about myself is greater than when the when I have achieved said thing or done said thing. You know, just something simple like we've been waiting two years to go to the Green Day Weezer Hell Omega show. And then we got there and I was happy to be there, but it was like the anticipation of that show had a much greater impact on, on me than being at the show itself. So like when Shepard's like, you know, I just wanted to go to space. I just wanted to be first. And then you get, you know, like, meh. Yeah. Okay. That <laughs> happened. I think that goes a little oh, bit to the it's dark idea. up here. Go ahead. I think it goes a little bit to the, to the hunger side of things though, as well. Mm -hmm. These are guys who are never, I'm going to pull the Hamilton reference. These are guys who are never satisfied. Yeah. Well, it's, an, you know, okay. So, uh, again, mark your square on the Rattle and Broadcasting bingo. It's it's always, the you know, in wrestling, the money is in the chase. You know, when the guy finally gets the belt, sure, that moment's the best. I mean, Ultimate Warrior, right? Um, favorite of this network. Probably right. not my era of wrestling, unfortunately. <laughs> For those of you who watch wrestling, um, you know, Ultimate Warrior peaks at WrestleMania 6 when he beats Hogan. Everything else after that, you know, for a variety of reasons, pales in comparison. You know, we watched him do the thing. And then he, yeah. and then he did it. And it was like, okay, well, unless there's something, there's another mountain for him to climb. You know, a, another reference here. Um, the end of, I think it's either Conan the Destroyer or Conan the Barbarian. Probably Conan the Destroyer. You know, where... Conan has bested all of his enemies. He's beaten the evil wizard. And the last visage you see is that painting of him slumped in the throne, having yep. nothing left to conquer. That was the first one. It is okay. It's the barbarian. Yep. Okay. Yeah. But I. But that's a common enough thread in both you know, in both history and um, and drama and fiction is that when you you know when you finally have achieved the thing. It can, it can never measure up to the expectation. It horror hardly ever measures up to the expectation. Alexander wept when he had no more king kingdoms to conquer. Okay, can we get one more reference in here? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that was what I was thinking of, too. I'm working on There's... one, trust me. <laughs> all right. I, I can see the wheel spinning. Um, all right, so back to the plot synopsis. Um, Trudy leaves Cooper, because why wouldn't she? Yeah. <laughs> Only to find that Jerry compared Cox... me to a chimp. <laughs> this is like a fucking just throwing bananas at him. Do I look like a fucking chimp to you? Um... Don't answer that. <laughs> you have a very poor track record on this topic, man. Stop Only... digging. <laughs> Only to find that Jerry Cobb can't accept her for the women's astronaut program due to Cooper's public comments. Gosh, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Uh, Cooper resumes his relationship with Lurline. Shepard collapses from the pain in his ear. Slayton is given the position of chief of the astronaut office at NASA, which I know was meant to be a really dramatic moment, but consider, but I had no frame of reference. I was like, good for fucking him. Um, 
President Kennedy makes a speech at Congress proposing the U.S. take the challenge to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And Glenn, inspired by Kennedy, lobbies for the large Atlas rocket over the Redstone uh, in order to chase the moon landing. Um, I'm going to give my final comments here, and then I'll let you guys take us home. Um, yeah, I, I was really surprised when they sent Shepard up at the beginning of the episode to have this sort of long reflection afterwards about hunger, about the chase and all of that. You know, what does what does one do with himself when he's achieved the goals? You know, do you do you, do you find more mountains to climb? It's this wrestling with your one's own success. Um, I really related to that. Not necessarily like I related to that emotionally. Um, I can't say I've related to that, you know, in actuality. Like I certainly have more mountains for myself to climb. But just under I, I was very sympathetic, I guess is what I'm saying, to that point of view, you know, and feeling like you can't, there's no satisfaction, no lasting satisfaction in having just achieved the thing. And then that's it. You, there's still more life to live and more things to do. Um, and so I like the fact that the show is in some ways a meditation on that. Um, it's not just a watch the guys do a thing and go to the, go to space. It's, you know, it, it's definitely about, as you said before, Andrew hunger and, you know, what, what does one, what does it mean to achieve your goals spiritually emotionally um so there's that um overall i thought i thought the show was very well done i was you know not again not a subject i'm particularly steeped in but something i i was very interested in as a uh, when as it went on um i was all competently acted i was very much drawn in i was ne there was never a point in there where there was a poor performance or a line reading that took me out of the show so i would say this is one of the better ones that i've watched um I don't know how I would rate it to some of the shows that I tend to rate very highly. And I don't know if that, if that somebody was asking me recently, like, why do you like this show and not that? Oh, we were talking about the Sopranos versus the wire and <laughs> mark it again on your bingo card. And I said, you need a wire yeah. drop by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> I'll have to work that in there. But I said, you know, I don't think the Sopranos spoke to the greater societal issues. I think it spoke to something very specific. Um, and while it was a well-told show and a well-acted show, well-crafted, it it for for me to, to hit the next level, you have to speak to the deeper. In my opinion, you have to speak to the deeper uh, societal issues, you know, that we all face. And The Wire does that, and The Sopranos doesn't. Um, and I think that's kind of my last word on this show. Is it's a well it's a well-told show. It's a very nice show. Um, it's an interesting show, but I'm not convinced it hits that level of like the wire or watchman for me but i don't know um i might have to think about that more and i will uh cede the floor to you david for your final thoughts on the episode the show life the universe and everything yeah like i certainly I'm, I'm with you with the whole uh you know the the, the hunger the desire to keep on having mm -hmm. something to strive for and almost the disappointment when you actually achieve something like i think you know Shepard has like the great line, you know, like I spent more time stuck in traffic than I did on the actual flight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like the, the window shutter got stuck, so I couldn't even see outside <laughs> the capsule. Right. But I mean, you know, hey, that that happens. Um, yeah, I can even like I think from what I took away from the, the sort of the, the movie, uh, the right stuff was just sort of how. You know, it was almost unfulfilling in a way, being part mm -hmm. of the space program as opposed to actually 
flying actual jets or aircraft just yeah like you're 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 in this can they shoot you up and then you come back down and they just tell you <laughs> what to do on the radio right um Ta-da. yeah 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 Ta-da. um but like even me like i sort of experienced that like when i was in uh, air cadets so if you don't know that's it's kind of like a youth program similar to the boy scouts but it's done uh, sort of in, in association with the canadian air force okay so we're they were not actually members they just sort of help i mean you know it's, it's certainly a good way of getting you know you know, moving in in that direction to joining the Air Force, but uh, but as part of it, you get uh, scholarships on a yearly basis to mm-hmm. do different things, and uh, sort of some like the the two biggest scholarships are the gliding scholarship, where you get your glider's license, and the the flying scholarship, where you actually get your private pilot's license. And you know, like it takes takes a few years to 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 get up there, and again, it's a highly competitive program. You know, like I think our squadron had about 150 yep. cadets, and I think we could only send two. To, to 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 try and get into this the scholarships and uh, anyway and and you know I got I got both cool you know, and yeah which is cool it was great but sort of after I after I you know got back from that and you know oh hey you know, look at me I got the wings on my chest I'm a pilot and then I just kind of like well well now now what do I do right you know like I so so like sort of my last year in the program before I aged out at you know 19 it was just kind of like yeah I'm, I'm here but like I'm I'm not hung you know the hunger's gone I'm not hungry for the next step I'm you know, not interested in getting promotions or other, you know, awards or badges. I just, you know, like I've got my wings. That's, that's sort of was my big, big thing. So I, I understand where he's coming from that, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, you want the next, the next thing. And, and again, that's maybe part of what gives you the right stuff is you'll, no matter how fast you go, you want to go faster. No matter how high you go, you want to go higher. You, you always want to push that next barrier. You know, like, you know, it, it's never enough. You never go like, okay, that was cool. I'm, I'm going to retire now. Mm-hmm. Very um, thematically, it's about a very personal, emotional thing, um, which may be why it doesn't elevate the show the way I I, I would like it to be elevated. Yeah, well, I think like you, you, know, you you can't. I don't think you can judge all art necessarily on the same metrics. Like, yes, some shows will get into like deep societal level stuff, but other times you just have like a good sort of personal story about a person, and that in itself can have mm-hmm. value too. No, no, uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm in no way. Or, or it could just have a lot of really cool scenes where people punch each other, like you know. Like you know, what what whatever whatever the goal is, right? Yes, Luke Skywalker can show up and hit everyone with a lightsaber, and it'll be a fucking amazing. That was fucking amazing. <laughs> it, it was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, but, I, I I'm not I'm not putting the show down at all. I think, oh, yeah. you know, we're talking like now we're talking Grady, and so like you know, yeah. trying to rank very similar in um in weight shows. Yeah. So. Well, it's, it's kind of like you know, you can't judge a comedy the same way you judge a horror film, right? You know. Like, did I laugh? If you're watching a horror <laughs> film, that's probably not a good thing. <laughs> uh, again, but, yeah, yeah, again, you see. But uh, anyway, uh, but for me, like, you know, I'm I'm more interested in more of the historic technical side of thing. Like, it's kind of telling okay. that we talk more about the history of like the actual events than maybe what actually went on in the show itself. Um, but but yeah, so like, I'm I'm kind of more like you know, I I'm curious in like the technical challenges. You know, like, I'm mm-hmm. I'm in an engineering field, right? Like, that's sort of I'm I'm interested in the you know, like, oh geez, you know, the lunar module is like ten pounds overweight. How are we going to solve that problem and you know, that kind of stuff? Uh, almost like the Martian level stuff. You know, I'm gonna you got to science the shit out of this stuff. But uh, whereas this is obviously a lot more of a personal story about the astronauts themselves, so it makes sense. Right. Um, but yeah, I think. Just the first season, just ending with yeah the first Mercury Redstone flight. I, I think I was expecting a bit, a bit of a faster pace. Mm-hmm. 
you know, like, like, you know, Shepard flies in episode three and then we're on to, you know, Glenn flying and then we're on to Gemini and then on to Apollo. Um, so I think it might've benefited a bit more from covering a bit more ground, you know, whereas yeah. the movie I think covers uh, up until, I think it covers most of the Mercury program. I, I think it kind of stops just before Gemini, uh, which is when they, they started the capsule sat too. So it was, it wasn't no longer the lone astronaut mm-hmm. going up, uh, but yeah, like for what it was, I thought it was good. And yeah, like if, if they're going, they were going to do more seasons, it makes a lot more sense. And I, I do kind of hope it does find a home somewhere. Yeah. And, maybe uh, end, I mean, yeah. it's Warner Brothers. Maybe it'll end up on HBO Max. Not like they're it's not like they don't need the content, especially next year yeah. when they yeah. don't have all these new movies. All right, yeah, Andrew. But, oh, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, for Disney Plus, like if you're looking for something to watch to keep your subscription alive until the next Marvel or Star Wars thing comes out, that's, yeah, that's certainly worth Worth checking out. Okay, yep. I think I'm, I'm out. <laughs> you can't watch Loki all the time. All right, take yeah. me home, Andrew. All right, good stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I think pretty solid, pretty solid uh, finale to this one. Definitely, you know, they hit the uh, hit the flight early on, and then are kind of dealing with the aftermath of that. Very much acting as a setup to, to season two because I think that's what they were aiming, working towards. So, uh, you know, I think probably one of the, I think all of your comments on kind of the hunger and the dissatisfaction that uh that Shepard had was was interesting um but i mean you know i think things kind of your new conflict that comes up is obviously when kennedy gives that statement and he gives his famous we will go to the moon and do the other thing speech no one from nasa knows one of the guys watching it and <laughs> nearly falls out of his chair <laughs> like it's like we don't know if we can do this by 1969 we don't know if we can do this by 1989 or ever right. I really hope there's a check coming after that statement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, and I mean, that's what this was working towards. And I mean, I think that goes to the theory of, of why they were talking about the, the, the women astronaut program, why they were talking about some of these things, because I think it was things that they were going to, to deal with. And I mean, you know, my, my feeling was if you can get, if they do get to shop it around and, and they do, you know, find a home for it, I think if this thing goes five seasons, I think that could probably pace it out fairly mm-hmm. well. Um, Overall, I did really enjoy it. I mean, you know, you're going to move some of the cast around moving forward because um, I think in the next season you'd see probably John Glenn. Well, you'd have um, uh, Gus Grissom and John Glenn do their flights. Um, Another interesting thing that wouldn't be covered in this series because apparently it's supposed to end with the moon landing is that uh, Shepard would actually get his inner ear issue addressed. It was Meniere's disease, which was chickier bingo cards for me. Uh, the same disease that uh, UFC president Dana White had a few years ago. So eventually okay. he had that fixed and actually went up and commanded Apollo 14. Oh, wow. Which is actually kind of, uh, that was covered in one of the episodes of uh, From the Earth to the Moon. And that one's kind of fun because at that point, he is now the old man of the of the space program. So there's a lot of jokes around that. And apparently one of the things he did was uh, they had uh, various kind of long sticks because they couldn't bend over to pick up things on the moon. Someone brought him a uh, an attachment for it. There was actually a golf club head, so he actually hit a golf ball on the moon. Nice. Of all the sports to pick to, to do in space, they they picked golf. Well, I mean, it's the it's the world's largest sand trap, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> overall, like I said, I mean, satisfying series. I hope we get to see more of it. I uh, I was pretty happy with it, and uh, yeah. Yeah. More more shows about space, please. Yep. All right, guys, this was great. I really enjoyed this. Um, I was, wasn't quite sure how it was going to go. Um, certainly a little bit longer than I had anticipated. But, 
you know, when the show is good and we have a lot to say, the shows go a little bit longer, even when there isn't six of us. Um, before we go, there's a lot of fun music in the show. And if you want to check out some of the music, but you don't want to pay for it, what you should do is sign up for amazonmusic.com. And we actually have a link in the description of this podcast that you can click on uh, for getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network. Click on it. You fill out the information. You get a free 30 days of Amazon Music. You can stream all you want. You can stream all the music in the show, stream other things that you like, stream the, uh, the music that we're covering on the Metal Hammer of Doom when we do cover it, both old and new. Um, so go ahead and click that link. It helps us out. We get credit for it, keeps the podcast running, and we certainly appreciate it. With that said, that is our review of The Right Stuff on Disney Plus from 2020. Um, you can, uh, wherever you happen to have found this podcast, if you're watching it on YouTube, there's also a link in the description for where you can find this on any of the podcasters that you might be using, like Apple or Spotify or Deezer or TuneIn or Stitcher or whatever. We're on them all. But um, there's a link to the link tree. It'll take you anywhere you want to go, anywhere you want, however you want to listen to us. And we would certainly greatly appreciate you uh, subscribing and sharing with those who you might also think would enjoy our uh, meanderings and ramblings. So we cover a lot here. I'm not going to tell you all the things we cover because if I start telling, if I start plugging things, we're going to be here for another 20 minutes. And I'm sure the next time I work, I'll just change it all anyway. So as I want to do, but uh, we cover lots of television, new movies, uh, heavy metal albums, cartoons, all kinds of ill shit. So check us out, subscribe, share around, we greatly appreciate it. Um, all right. Real quick, Andrew, anything you want to plug? Sure thing. Um, so uh, for those of you who haven't seen me before on the network, uh, I do train a lot of martial arts. I train at Esteem and Havoc Martial Arts here in Calgary, Alberta. Um, it has been closed for the last couple of weeks because they're actually opening at a new location starting on Tuesday. So uh, they can be found on, uh, on Facebook, on TikTok, on Instagram on basically all of your major platforms. It is a fantastic place to train. Great people. Um, and at least to say, if, you, uh, if you're in the Calgary area, please come and seek us out. Um, you know, if you're definitely looking to, to change up the routine after the lockdowns are over, then uh, this is a great way to do it. And hope to see you out there. Cool. Dave, anything you want to plug real quick? Uh, yeah, sure. So I think I mentioned it already in the show, the, the, the Apple TV original series uh, for all mankind. If you, you're into the sort of space history stuff, uh, that's an interesting show to watch if you sort of wondered what if the space race had continued on past the Apollo program, uh, as well as the Cold War. That would be that's a show I would recommend. And I mentioned before the book Fighting for Space, Two Pilots in Their Historic Battle for Female Space Flight by Amy Shira Tatel. Uh, might be a link in the description. We'll see what Mark wants to do there. And as for me, uh, probably around the release of this show, uh, the Star Trek uh retrospective uh, third movie podcast covering the Kelvin timeline films. So the Star Trek movies past 2009 uh, with me, Mark and uh, Robert It's finally finished editing. So that should be out. So give that a listen. Uh, this one turned out really good. I think you'll all enjoy it. Cool. All right, folks, that's all for us. Uh, thanks for listening. Be well, be safe and behave.